0: Hi guys, welcome to the Political Deactivist Podcast. My name is Randall. Today we are talking to David Limbrick. David, welcome to the show. Hi Randall, how's it going? I'm doing well. I mean, it's a great time to live in Sydney, I guess, uh, compared to Melbourne anyway. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know and tell us about what you were doing before you started your political
1: journey. Yeah, so um, I'm David Limbrick and um, before politics, I... uh, started at university studying uh, computing and science Um, and then my career was mostly in IT working in uh, business intelligence and data warehousing and I've spent almost two decades doing that with a two-year sabbatical I went to Japan to work as a teacher for a couple of years so um, that was a bit of an interesting diversion for a while I decided that um, it gave it gave me a lot of a lot more respect for teachers and decided that I don't have what it takes to be a teacher, I don't think. It's a very, very difficult job. But it was very enjoyable and I loved going there. And um and then when I got back, uh I was always sort of interested in politics and um so I think around two thousand and thirteen I I'd been following the Liberal Democrats. So the Liberal Democrats are a um Classical Liberal or Libertarian Party, and we've been around since uh, 2001. And uh, I've been following them since probably early 2000s. I decided to become a member around 2013, and then got active in 2014. And that was around the time of the previous state election. I actually ran as a candidate. and that was pretty scary experience i'd had nothing to do with politics up until that point um and you know going public and standing up and arguing for your beliefs is pretty scary thing to do for anyone um but i learned a lot learned how a lot how politics and elections work and that sort of thing and then i ran i stayed involved eventually became elect was elected to the state executive and uh, I ran in this in the federal election in 2016 again as in the Senate, and then again in the 2018 uh, state election. And this was our most successful um, election yet, where we got two members elected. So one was in Northern Victoria, Tim Quilty, and um, myself in Southeast Metro. And so, you know, for people who are wondering what the Liberal Democrats are all about. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, really. We, uh, Our philosophy is fairly simple. We think that um, people should be allowed to conduct their lives freely without interference from uh, government or other people, uh, as long as they, they're not harming other people. So you should be free to act as you want, as long as you're not hurting other people. Basically, that's our fundamental belief. And you know, there's a lot of philosophy and everything behind that, but you know, that's fairly simple way of um, narrowing it down.
0: So, did something change in two thousand and eighteen uh, for this kind of uh, surge in popularity, or was it more that you guys really pushed and campaigned hard? What what happened there?
1: I don't think it was us specifically, but there was there's certainly been a trend of a. Uh, larger number of people voting for non, non-major parties, so non-Liberal, Labor, Green parties, and that's been a consistent trend. And because of the way that the the preferences system works is that more votes that go to those non, non-major parties end up with more of these minor parties being elected. And so that's exactly what we saw in Victoria. We ended up seeing 11 Crossbenchers elected—that's including the Greens—and so the crossbench in Victoria at the time after the election was actually the same size as the opposition. So in the in, this is in the upper house in the Legislative Council, and so the, yeah, the opposition is eleven members, the crossbench is eleven members. Very diverse group of people. Um, so there's two Liberal Democrats. There's also a Green. Um, there's also a Shooters, Farmers and Fishers, Animal Justice Party, Sustainable Australia, Independent. Um, Yeah, so lots of transport matters. So there's lots of different groups with uh, different views. Many of them are sort of single issue type parties, but we're not, we're a very general, we have a very general uh, philosophy. Um, Yeah, so the government doesn't have a majority in the upper house, but they, they had 18. They've got 17 members now, so they need 21 to pass legislation. So, um, yeah, they did have 18. So they, they need a, a bit more to pass legislation now. So, yeah.
0: And before COVID, what were you pushing for? What were your biggest challenges going in? What were you pushing for? What were you fighting for with the Liberal Democrats before this COVID disaster started?
1: Yeah, so the, the areas that I've been focusing on, you know, in my maiden speech and, you know, since I got elected, we are always pushing things like, you know, I spoke a lot about um, uh, drug law reform. That's something that I'm really passionate about, um, you know, ending the war on drugs and looking at that. Um, vaping is something that I've been talking about a lot recently. Another issue that I'm very passionate about is energy policy and so um, one of the things that I planned to do and actually managed to do was to, in Victoria we have uh, special prohibition on what they call nuclear activities and so I I wanted an inquiry to look at um, to look into this legislation and what might be the benefits of removing that prohibition on nuclear uh, pro- nuclear activities in Victoria. So, you know, looking at things like nuclear power and things like that. So that inquiry is running at the moment. In fact, um, next Friday we've got public hearings, which will be fantastic. So um, yeah, that's been really exciting, um, and also just resisting a lot of the. Uh, authoritarian things that the government has been doing. I, I know since the pandemic, there's been this real extreme authoritarianism um, show itself. But uh, before that, even there was lots of things that we were very concerned about that the government was doing. And in fact, one of our first great failures, not that we ever had a chance of stopping it, but one of the things that very that upset me, me and my team a lot was the government uh, removed Uh, Judicial oversight for forcible DNA collection for suspects. So previously we had a system where if the police wanted to collect the DNA of a suspect, they had to get a warrant from a judge basically, um, which I think is a a reasonable safeguard for that sort of thing. I do accept that DNA evidence is uh, vital for um, investigating crimes and things like this, but I do think that it needs um, checks and balances. If, and anyway, that that check, that balance was removed, um, so the police don't need judicial oversight anymore. They can just do it themselves, which we um, were all very concerned about, especially considering in Victoria some of the issues with uh, police that we've had, you know, in the last decade, really. Um, you know, you may be familiar with the Lawyer X scandal and a whole bunch of other things. And and police overreach and oversight have been things that we've been focusing a lot on. So there's been a lot of cases of police uh, doing things, you know, like hurting people when they're arresting them and you know there was a case in last year at the 420 rally where a young girl was arrested and got punched in the head by the police and then there's been other cases where the the, the police made a mistake with a when they were doing a uh, a search and got the wrong place and the guy's guy's house that they went into this was in the hares and hyenas bookshop but it was all in all the newspapers but i mean you know they they busted his arm basically when they were arresting him and he was totally innocent, had nothing to do with the crime. They just got the address wrong or something. So there's been lots of cases like this. And since the pandemic as well, there's been some shocking cases. There was one just yesterday with a, a woman and her mother were out on the street and got arrested for, I don't know, walking on the street. I think you can get arrested for that now. And cause they didn't have identification with them or something. And she got injured and, you know, I, I, I think this is a big problem in Victoria that, um, yeah, that we need to address.
0: So what is the Liberal Democratic view on drug reform? What is the position on drug reform?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, drug law reform is a really big topic with lots of Um, issues right it's not just a single issue but my philosophical um, background in this is that you know um, we don't we think that victimless crimes shouldn't be a crime so effectively that means that people who take drugs are not necessarily hurting other people therefore that shouldn't be a crime and so if we look at all the issues in drug law reform there's uh, things like um, cannabis uh, Legalisation. So our view on that is pretty straightforward. We think it should be um, legalised for uh, medical, industrial, and recreational use, with you know, with some restrictions on sales to minor and and um, some sort of regulation. But uh, yeah, basically allow that industry to go ahead. Um, and the reason behind that is. Uh, it's a massive industry anyway, right? but at the moment it's all black market and organized crime, and we think that it's much better for Victorians to have that in a legal market where um, uh, it's not controlled by organized crime because there's all sorts of issues with that, especially in victoria and you know we we accept that there is some harm caused by um, uh, cannabis and the the question that we ask is you know, does prohibition uh, decrease or increase that harm? And it's my belief that prohibition increases the harm caused by drugs. Uh, So that's on cannabis. On other drugs, uh, um, our policy is that uh, possession of small quantities should be uh, decriminalized for uh, all drugs. Um, And that's, that's not because, you know, I condone of people taking drugs or think that taking drugs is a good thing. It's because I think that um, if someone is arrested and you know jailed or something like this because they possess drugs, I don't think that helps anyone. I don't think it helps the person taking the drugs. I don't think it helps taxpayers because it costs a fortune. I don't think it helps anyone at all. So um, I just think that's a silly thing to do. Um, I'm open-minded about what other options there may be. And basically, I'd support any option that's not putting someone in prison. Um, so I know other countries have other ways of dealing this, so dealing with this. So, you know, they might have education programs or something like that. And, you know, I'd be supportive of anything like that. Other issues, pill testing. Um, that's something that I've spoken on a few times. I support that. Um, I sometimes get some criticism from libertarians for supporting that. But again, um, There's no reason why it has to be some sort of state-funded operation. In fact, in other countries, uh, they run them as not-for-profit organizations that go to festivals and things like this. And anything that can provide people with more information about these um, pills and things like that, that will stop them uh, coming to harm, then um, I'm supportive of that. So, yeah, pill testing is another one. And um, yeah, so, I mean, there's a whole range of issues in drug law reform, but, you know, the big ones in Victoria, I think, is cannabis legalisation and, you know, something other than putting people in prison and arresting them for possession, I think, are two really big things that um, need to be looked at.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, the other thing is that you're not a real libertarian, unless other libertarians have told you that you're not a real
1: libertarian. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, you have to be, you have to be politically pragmatic in some ways as well. So, you know, we're, I'm not necessarily, and, and I think a lot of people get confused about this, in that they see a lot of politicians and a lot of political philosophies view this end state, this sort of perfect end state. and. Um, you know, I don't know what freedom looks like right in the in in the end state. That's okay though. I mean my job is to push on each particular issue um, towards a more freest a more free state. and you know if if that means that you know we can push for uh, you know rather than criminalize people for drug possession, put them into some divert them into some other, mechanism then i'll support that you know any anything that's better than the status quo or more in the direction that we want then we'll we'll support it and we'll ally with people whoever it may be who's on the same page with that and they may be doing it for different reasons to us you know like in drug law reform, people are often surprised that you know we cooperate with the greens and stuff like that you know I've spoken at um events with um, greens m p s and you know people see us as as if we're enemies and stuff. And on a lot of issues we are that um, I don't want <clears throat> to, I've tried to avoid tribalism as much as possible, because I think it's, it's for a small party w- with a small following, it doesn't make sense to me to have this sort of really tribal approach. And we should be forming alliances with people rather than, you know, cutting people off just because, you know, we think they're from the wrong tribe or something like that. And I've been very Um, very big on trying to not be not be tribalistic about it all yeah so you're two years
0: into your role and bang COVID hits so what's uh what's life like as an mp in melbourne how what are the challenges now
1: yeah well we never saw this coming um i'm glad that there's two libertarians in parliament at the moment um you know we've suffered In Victoria, we've suffered um, restrictions on our social and economic freedom that I never imagined would happen in my lifetime. Um, At the moment in Victoria, we have, like right now, we have what they call stage four uh, restrictions. We have 8 p.m. curfew. Um, You're not allowed to leave your home except to go to work, uh, exercise for one hour a day. Um, within five kilometres of your house. Um, you're allowed to go and get medical assistance and you're allowed one trip to the shopping centre for one hour a day uh, for to buy essential supplies. And that's it. And even going to work, you need a work permit. Um, uh, I mean, this is just incredible uh, what's happened here. And um, we've been busier than ever. So there's there's been very few politicians resisting all this, um, which is really disappointing, but it, it also means that our job's are more important than ever. So we're questioning the restrictions, you know, we accepted up front that, you know, the government does have some role in a pandemic. I mean, even if you talk to um, uh, Frederick Hayek, he would have something to say about that. And that, you know, I'm not an anarchist. I think that the government does have a role in helping to manage uh, pandemic situations. But um, it needs to, be, needs to be highly rational and evidence-based. And I, I think a lot of these restrictions are not rational at all. They seem to have focused everything on the advice of the health experts and epidemiologists. And I've said for ages that if you give a public health person unlimited power, unlimited budget, and say your goal is to save people's lives, and that's it, um, their response will always be to lock people up, right? Like that's the ultimate way to say, you know, it's like if you did the same with a, someone who was in charge of the road toll, right? And you said to them, okay, you have unlimited power and unlimited budget, and your job is to make uh, road accidents go to zero. Well, they'll change the speed limit to four kilometers an hour, right? That's that's the way that they would work. And so I, I don't feel like all the voices have been in the room on these discussions. And I've asked questions about this in Parliament about, you know, what are the harms that these actions are causing? um, Because their actions are definitely causing harm. Um, And it's not just economic harm. It's, well, you know, people have been trying to Supporters of these lockdowns have been trying to you know, demonise anyone that criticises what they're doing. They say, well, we're saving lives and the money doesn't matter, the economics doesn't matter. And they've created this sort of false dichotomy. And what they don't really realise or don't want to acknowledge is that you know, the economy is people's lives. It's the, it's the way of measuring the, the needs and desires of humans and how they interact and cooperate with each other improve their standard of living and provide all of the things that we need in life, including healthcare, right? Because that's funded by taxes, which come from the economy. And so when they lock down all these things and restrict people's social and economic freedom, it definitely causes harm. And so some of those harms can be, you know, people lose their jobs, they get um, mental mental health and, and, and physical health issues and It crowds out medical research. People don't go and get checks for things, for medical checks that they probably should be getting, or they can't get treatment for other issues. And so there's all these longer-term harms which also affect life expectancy, but I don't feel like they're really sort of doing that calculation or wanna really acknowledge that it even exists because the problem is, is if you do that calculation and you find out that the harm caused by the government is worse than the harm caused by the disease then the government is actually killing people in that situation do you know what i mean and so i think that's why they just demonize anyone that questions it so it's been really disappointing and um i don't think that i think that they haven't got that balance right at all
0: what do you think it would take for Dan, Dictator Dan, Daniel Andrews, to actually change his mind or shift his position just a little bit, um, what would it take? Will he ever change his mind or will he just save save face forever? What's going on?
1: I don't know what's going to make them change their mind. Uh, Look, they've stated that they're going for a suppression strategy, not eradication. But, um, I mean, my concern has been that almost every step that they've taken has been involve the use of force right Um, and a good example is the recent um, mandatory masks thing now i was actually calling for the government to put out recommendations for um, mask wearing to people to provide good information about you know how they work what they're good for what their limitations are and all that sort of thing the government actually said early on recommended people don't wear masks Now, I don't know why they did that. Maybe they were worried about supplies or something. I I don't know. Or maybe they just thought it wasn't necessary at that point. And then they went straight from this recommendation of not wearing masks to being mandatory. And this just struck me as a crazy thing to do. Because, you know, in other countries, and the example that I've given many times is in Japan. Now, all right, fair enough. They've got a culture of wearing masks historically so it's not such a big deal for them but i see that if if it does help for people to wear masks that it would be much more productive if the government provided good advice education and support on how to wear masks and encourage people to do that and use you know maybe some sort of social pressure or something from people but to make it mandatory straight away has resulted in all of these sort of issues like you know groups like they call them anti-maskers um it sort of validates their position you know because all of a sudden they're persecuted sort of thing right and it also leads people to rather than use masks effectively which you know is not a simple thing right you need you need to use the right type of mask and put it on the right way and take it off the right way and use it appropriately People aren't thinking about that at all. They're just thinking about compliance so they don't get a fine, right? So all they care about is that something's across their face so they don't get a fine. And, you know, is that effective mask use? Probably not. Um, I'd rather that I'd rather we had less people use masks effectively than lots of people use masks ineffectively. But, um, you know, that's what they've done. And, and they've been like this right from the start. Like everything's just been, you know, fines, 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 fines. We've had more fines than any other state and yet we've got the worst results. Um, so, you know, I've said this many times, I don't think you can find your way out of a pandemic. I don't think that if more fines is like some magical cure for coronavirus, it's just, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. And I don't don't know what it'll take for them to change tack on that. They, they're going harder than ever right now. Like we have signs out on the street, you know, um, curfew at 8 p.m. and people are getting, you know, $1,600 fines for, you know, there's one guy that he went, I don't know, they wanted dinner and they, this like every morning they come out with a list of bad guys. So they've even got names for them. They call them COVIDiots, right? And so this list of people who've committed these, you know, these crimes that they can demonize. And I think part of it is just they're trying to deflect hate away from themselves onto the public. Um, and get and get society turning on each other which is awful but you know some of the crimes that happened last night oh you know someone uh wanted to get a pizza delivered at their house and the pizza shop wasn't delivering at 9 30 so they just said stuff it and they drove down to the pizza shop and picked it up and got a fine and ended up being in the conference um you know some people weren't wearing masks outside you know I, i said why don't they get the police to hand out masks instead of fines like <laughs> not perfect but it's better than better than what they're doing i think you know if if people don't have a mask you know the police could explain to them you know here's a mask and here's how you use it and we think it'd be a really nice thing if you did it we would don't want to find you and but you know that's not what's happening there they're just they've gone hardcore policing on this and i just don't think it's sustainable people are already um reacting to it and that will only grow i think so i just don't see how it's sustainable at all
0: one of the things i found really frustrating uh, I, I saw a news poll it was by news.com.au or one of those on facebook and it said do you think mask wearing should be mandatory for new south wales and 80 percent of people voted yes but when you walk around the streets 80 percent of people aren't wearing masks they're very happy to force someone else to wear a mask if it's by law but they themselves aren't even going to voluntarily wear the mask unless it is a law, um, which is quite frustrating. But my question is, what are the people thinking? What's the perception of the public in Melbourne? Are people actually very, very receptive to these kind of measures or are they pushing back a little bit? Are you guys the only ones that are pushing back?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, we're definitely getting a lot more interest from... Public and the media, because we're the ones uh, resisting some of these things and have a different view on it. Um, You know, from a media point of view, I suppose that's what they want that they want people with an alternative view that isn't nuts. And I think we fit that pretty well. I hope people don't think we're nuts, but you know, (laughs) depends how far we go down the authoritarian rabbit hole before people (laughs) start thinking we're nuts. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's growing, but there's there's a lot of people look I think we've for a long time we've had this problem in Australia and I think that's a great example that you brought up about the the people wanting it to be mandatory. There's this idea that that lots of Australians have and I I don't know where it's come from but it's not it wasn't brought about by the pandemic, it's been around a long time before that. This idea that everything bad should be banned and everything good should be um subsidized you know the classic thing is you know everything i don't like should be outlawed and everything i like should be a human right sort of thing and um there's sort of no room for personal choice and the idea that something should be mandatory before someone will choose to do it is a really uh it's an insulting thing to adults with Intellect and agency over their own lives to just ignore that. I mean, people people can make their own decisions. They people manage their own risks all the time um, about everything. You know, everything that you do in life is a risk. And if you provide people with more information about those risks and what those risks are, now most of the risks that we take we're pretty comfortable with, right? You know, you get in a car and you drive your car, and that's pretty big risk, right? You can have an accident and kill yourself. And, you know, you can drink beer and wine and stuff. And that's a risk as well. And, you know, people work in certain jobs and that's a risk. And these are risks that we've sort of integrated and know how to deal with. When a new risk comes along, like coronavirus, um, there's new information that we need in order to manage those risks. And rather than provide people with lots of information about what those risks really are, and how you might be able to manage it and what sort of decisions you could make. They've just come out with all these rules and regulations and said, here's what you got to do. And in a lot of, to make it easier to police, they have to simplify everything, right? It's a really blunt instrument. And so, you know, like with the mask wearing again, they've said, right, you have to wear it whenever you're outside, okay? Now, you know, does it make sense to wear a mask when you're walking down the street by yourself with no one else around? Of course it doesn't, there's no science behind that, but it makes it easier to police, so they do it that way. Whereas if they gave people choice, people would choose to do it. And you know, in countries where it is a choice, they choose to do it in situations where they're in an office with other people or where in, when they take public transport, or if they're in a, an area where there's lots of other people outdoors, that's the sort of situations where they do it. And if they're walking in the park by themselves, they probably wouldn't wear a mask because it doesn't really make any sense. And I think because of that, because they're making these things mandatory that aren't rational um, when you think about it, uh, people eventually will get fed up with it. I think they'll, you know, at first it's like, you know, these crazy people who resist these things. But after a while, your, your, your intelligent and rational person will be walking down the street and he'll be saying to himself, there's no one else around. Why am I wearing a mask right now? And they'll question it. They'll, and Of course, they're right. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah. Look, Corona has been here and it's going to
0: leave. So we can't just talk about Corona every single day. Mm. The world keeps spinning. So uh, on the subject of personal responsibility and personal choice and having those choices open up to the public, Uh, you guys have been doing a lot of work with nicotine vaping. Can you just tell us what the problem is and what you guys have been trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, so, um, okay, so in Victoria, well, in Australia, it's illegal to sell um, vape juice. So vape juice, for those that aren't aware, is like a liquid that you put into a vape device. And vape, if you're not familiar with what vaping is, it's an alternative to... Smoking, So it's a way that some people use to uh, quit smoking, and it's much less harmful than smoking, Um, but it's illegal to have the juice that has nicotine in it in Australia, it's illegal to sell it. And so what lots of people do is they import it in, uh, primarily from New Zealand, but also other countries, but you can order it online from New Zealand where it's legal and you can buy it in New Zealand, and they actually just passed a law legalizing it um, fully And in fact, New Zealand's public health establishment is very supportive of vaping, unlike Australia's public health establishment. Big contrast there. Anyway, um, the federal health minister said that they were going to ban imports of uh, personal imports of nicotine-containing liquid uh, as of 30th of June. And... Anything after that would be confiscated by a border force, and you would be getting fines of two hundred thousand dollars or something crazy. And as we've seen in the recent uh, uh, statistics, there's over five hundred thousand vapors in Australia, and they panicked. Like they they were like, "Wow, like um, I've given up smoking, I'm vaping now, and I'm not going to have access to any of this stuff." And what they were proposing is that you go and get a prescription from some doctor and then you can get a license or something to import it. It's totally unworkable idea in my opinion. And even crazier considering that other nicotine replacement products, you can just walk into Woolies and buy them. So, you know, the little lozenges and the sprays and that sort of thing. Um, Anyone can just walk in there. I think 12 year olds can even buy them in in the supermarket, which seems sort of crazy uh, considering how strict they are around vaping. And so there was a big campaign, pressuring the federal health minister to uh, stop this, and they did. We we had a victory, and they delayed it until the end of the year, end of the calendar year. Now we're hoping that they won't go ahead with that because I think it'll be a public health disaster. You know, just back of the envelope calculations, we know that you know I think it's one in three people who smoke die from smoking cigarettes. And, you know, if you've got 500,000 people that are vaping that have used it to give up cigarettes, if you get half of them go back on the smokes, um, we're talking tens of thousands of people dead from this. Like this is a real disaster if this happens. And I think maybe they might've seen sense on that and, um, we'll see, but we had a motion put up, um, which we were meant to debate, uh, this week actually on Wednesday, but it was postponed because parliament was suspended uh, on vaping. So um, we, we have a motion to, you know, legalize vaping. I mean, one of the other issues about it, not being legal to import this stuff is that you can't, there's no way of restricting uh, children getting access to it because it's not a legal product, right? So for legal products that are restricted from children, you have to show your ID or something when you purchase it in a shop. Um, but when you purchase it online or something, there's nothing like that. So, you know, with alcohol or any of these other things, um, it's uh, it's harder for kids to get access to it because they have to show their ID when they walk in and buy it. And I think that's fine for vaping. You know, if someone wants to buy a vape or vape liquid, they should be an adult because children shouldn't be doing it. Um, but, you know, there is no mechanism to prevent Kids getting that because it's not a legal product.
0: Yeah, and I find it funny that it's like, okay, you can uh, you can smoke cigarettes, or you can try and import nicotine, but probably get a two hundred thousand dollar fine, or you can go to the doctors during a pandemic so that you can um, get that nicotine fix.
1: No, uh, well, yeah, your preachers sure have converted there. I mean, I don't get it either. It's just crazy. I mean, you know, fundamentally whatever risk you think there is with vaping, and I think the science says that, you know, there's not no risk, but there's certainly a lot less risk than tobacco. Anything that's an option that is less option for smokers, that is less harmful than tobacco should be legal and should be available as a choice for smokers. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me. And, you know, if it's 95% less harmful, like they say, then let people have that choice. That's what that's what I want, is more choices for people.
0: So at the end of the day, do you think it is the government that needs to change or is it the people's perception of the government that needs to change? Which one is it or is it a bit of both?
1: Look, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I would like more people to. Think about things that can happen voluntarily in a free society without first resorting to government force on everything which is what lots of people seem to do you know what i was saying before you know if people seem to have this thing in their head that if something is bad government should stop it and uh i don't think that's a very good very healthy thing for society i think that um if something's bad by all means tell people that it's bad tell people that they shouldn't do it um campaign for people to not do it but don't bring the government in because there's a whole lot of um, bad consequences of doing that. You know, prohibition is the ultimate example, and you know, it's a catastrophic um, policy. You know, drugs are bad. You know, I, I get it. Drugs can cause harm to people. No one, no one argues against that. No one, no one says that drugs are wonderful. Um, you know, and that you know that there's no harm. Of course, there's possible harm, but the government getting involved makes that harm worse. And it's the same situation in lots of things. That said, there is a change, a possible change on the government side of things as well. When you have more people elected to parliament with who whose role is to defend freedom, so people like Liberal Democrats, so we've got two of them in Victoria, I think that it does have some effect because we're using... Uh, language and talking about things in a way that they're not used to hearing and we're opposing things that they're not used to people opposing and um, we can open the Overton window or push the Overton window on these things a bit I think you know like I'll give you a good example there was a fight that the government had that we um, brought up that I don't think they were expecting a fight on this at all. This was around engineer registrations last year. So they brought in this occupational licensing scheme for engineers. So at, before this legislation was brought in, engineers didn't need to have a license. They've they've got their own uh, professional associations and this sort of thing, and it was sort of managed themselves. Anyway, they decided that they wanted to bring in an engineer licensing scheme, so you couldn't call yourself an engineer unless you had a bit of paper from the government. and um, There was almost no opposition to this at all, but we went nuts on it and um, ended up causing a big um, storm and got in like mass major media in the newspapers and stuff like that uh, because the engineers were upset about it. Lots of engineers were upset about it and um, they weren't expecting a fight on that at all. They thought it would just go through quietly and it would be one of those nothing bills that passes all the time that no one even cares about, but um, it wasn't in the end. It turned out to be a big fight. So, look, I, I think I think when a lot of these things, what you're trying to do, you're not we don't we're not we're not going to have the numbers to stop legislation like that, but what you do with a lot of these things is you're increasing the transaction cost for people that want to uh, bring in more authoritarian laws. If we can increase the transaction cost for them to do that, then we're doing our job properly, I think. And similarly, we can decrease the transaction costs for people that want to do pro-liberty things. Like, you know, if they want to move on drug law reform, in the last term of parliament, the government took a big risk on that. They actually did some good stuff, like um, they legalized uh, cannabis for medical use, which I thought was an excellent thing. And that was very difficult for them to do that. But we can actually decrease the transaction costs for a government that wants to do something like that as well by... Uh, defending their actions if they want to do that. So, and you know, we're we're happy to do that as well. We're not not necessarily going to oppose everything that the government does. In fact, when they've done things that are pro-liberty, we've been highly supportive and, and vocally so about it. So yeah, I think that's a way that we can do it politically.
0: So if Daniel Andrews or maybe Scott Morrison were watching this, what would your one message to them be?
1: Don't always resort to the stick, please. <laughs> their first, first, last and only resort is the stick, especially in Victoria. I want them to think about that Victorians are adults. We can make our own decisions if we're given good information, good advice, and the freedom to make those decisions, that we can make better decisions. And I think it'll make their job of governing a lot easier and it would make uh, for better outcomes for everyone, especially during this pandemic, but beyond the pandemic as well. And my other message is there's a lot of people, my, my view has always been that people who value freedom the most are those who've lost it. You talk to refugees who've fled authoritarian regimes, they're very uh, precious about their freedoms that they have in Australia. now everyone's lost their freedom to some degree in Australia. And I hope that Australians remember what it feels like to lose their freedom and are more willing in the future to defend it and fight for it. That's my hope. That's my optimistic hope.
0: Perfect. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for listening or watching to the Political Deactivist Podcast. This is the first time where you can see my face. I know, I know. Talk to my wife about it. She doesn't like looking at me either. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is listen to it by searching for the Political Deactivist Podcast on Spotify or Apple or whatever. You can even YouTube it if you type in the Political Deactivist Podcast. Now, you can also watch our documentary called AnotherWayMovie.com, which explores libertarian ideas and applies it to Australia. Uh, I think we're very fertile ground for this sort of personal responsibility small government type thinking although we are on a very very slippery slope to becoming a terrible terrible nation where everyone just flees because the taxes are too high and the police are too tough i.e Melbourne during lockdown anyway until next time make sure you follow like subscribe and send it to your friends and if you didn't like it send it to your enemies see you next time